Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our event today, um, Lord Haldane, considering Lord Haldane and his role in uh, public life and public, um, uh, his role in public life, and as, as has been written as John Campbell, who I'm delighted to welcome here today, has written the most magnificent uh, biography of Lord Haldane, calling him the forgotten statesman, which I think is is unfortunately the status that he has, but not one that he will have for much longer, John, thanks to your book. Um, so it's a delight, absolute delight to welcome you here this afternoon. And I'm also delighted to welcome Jill Pellew, who's going to be uh, discussing Lord Haldane with us. Uh, Jill is a Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Historical Research at the University of London. Um, and also to welcome Andres Velasco, who is Dean of the School of Public Policy here at the LSE. So we have just a huge life and a huge person to talk about this evening, John. And he was just the most incredible character. I studied law um, as a student. I'm a, a law professor and I have a background and, and specialise in public law. So I know Lord Haldane through his judgments. And you just, he's just Lord Haldane, et cetera. And to be honest, he had so many of them and they were so significant in themselves that I had no idea he would have any time for anything else. And then I learned through your biography that actually this was probably just about a quarter of everything that he was up to. And I really have absolutely no idea how he managed to um, fit everything in and be so impactful and yet so measured uh, and so wise uh, in, all that he, in all that he did. So for those of you who are with us um, online, welcome in terms of the um, etiquette of how we will manage the event this evening. We will be using the Q&A function for questions, so please post your questions there. Uh, we will open the event with a video from Gordon Brown, um, and then I will turn to John to, uh, to give us some highlights, as it were, of uh, Lord Haldane's uh, life and thoughts and writings, and then turn to Jill for her comments and reflections. Well, then... Um, have a couple of, of questions uh, from that, and then we'll open up for, for Q&A. So please do be thinking about your questions um, and put them in that Q&A function as they come in. And then we will uh, close and aim to close with some remarks from uh, Professor Andres Velasco. So that is our order of proceedings uh, for today. And so I think we will now turn to uh, Gordon Brown. Tonight is an occasion which would have suited Lord Holding down to the ground an event hosted by a distinguished professor of the university at the university he helped create, leaders from different walks of life discussing big ideas from the future of education to the prospects for international relations, and engaged not just from a party political point of view, but from the philosophical standpoints that matter to hold in, and all on the basis of a book that finally rescues this great man from what has been called the condescension of posterity. The book itself, A Labour of Love by John Campbell, whose prodigious research and his literary skills we can praise tonight. On his death at the age of 72 in 1928, the Times of London called Holding one of the most powerful, subtle and encyclopedic intellects ever devoted to the public service of this country. Sidney Webb, the Fabian, called him a successful lawyer tinged with socialism. And both, of course, were right. He radically reformed central government, reconstructed our armed forces, gave Canada a constitution that is endured even when challenged by nationalism, and he built bridges with Europe, especially with Germany, a country he knew well. It, he was this generation's most impressive education reformer, but alongside Sidney and Beatrice Webb, 
He was one of the founders of the LSE, now 125 years old. He helped deliver the University of London as a teaching university body a few years later, and then the University Grants Committee. He greatly influenced many other universities, constantly gave lectures on the importance of education, added the chancellorship of St. Andrews University to that of Bristol, the presidency of Burbeck College just before he died. To him, researchers everywhere, all what is called the Haldane Principle, the idea that decisions about what to spend research funds on should not be made by uh, politicians, uh, but by academics. Not unlike Churchill, who served at the Admiralty in the final months of holding six years in charge of the army, his career had many ebbs and flows. A Liberal MP for all of 26 years, from 1885 till 1911, before going to the House of Lords. Sacked as Lord Chancellor in 1915 for being seen as too pro-German, then switching parties from Liberal to Labour in pursuit of deeper social and educational reforms, returning as Lord Chancellor in the 1924 Labour government and remaining a Labour member of the Lords until his death. Others tonight will highlight his ecumenicism, his instincts as a reformer, his scientific expertise, his philosophical interests, his military genius. But I want to highlight his lasting contribution to the debate about the future of the United Kingdom, a debate that is live today. One moment stands out in my mind. When walking to the top of the highest hill in East Scotland, he reflected that the vast lands of Fife, Clackmanshire, and Stirlingshire and the Lothians right down to the borders were all represented by liberal members of parliament and all of them were like him, London lawyers. And that was the problem. Despite all of Haldine's efforts to embrace social change, he was later to concede that the liberals were increasingly out of step with the times. Soon most of all these seats would go to local people, mainly labor councillors and local trade unionists rather than London lawyers. And their success helped elect the first Labour government in 1924, of which Haldane was a part. Now, after 100 years of mainly Labour representation, these areas are represented in the main by Scottish nationalists. But the Scottish question, indeed the devolution question, Haldane spoke about often, remains unresolved to people's satisfaction. In 1898, Haldane favoured what he called some considerable devolution to local bodies in the country of powers of self-government saying, I'm not prepared to put any limit on this devolution. His Canadian constitutional reforms giving the provinces greater powers within the Dominion enshrined principles of self-government. The Irish Union, he conceded, was in his words, a paper contract and not a union of hearts. And he said, the last thing I desire to do is deny the sentiment of nationality which exists in these portions of the empire. They all have legitimate grievances to deal with. Strong states, he believed, are built from the bottom up. And later in life, as John Campbell recounts, he championed the work of an American academic, Mary Follett, whose book, The New State, rooted democracy in associations of local people. Now, not only did Holding lecture at the LSE, but so too did Mary Follett. Perhaps inspired by Holding's legacy, the LSE, with all its great expertise across so many different departments, might be encouraged to play a big part in what is the coming debate about the future of the United Kingdom. And this important book by John Campbell is our starting point. That's a wonderful introduction. And thank you so much to Sir Gordon Brown for that um, incredible uh, tour de force, as it were, of uh, a tour de force in itself, which is um, Lord Haldane's life and John, your, your account of it. And I think what uh, Sir Gordon Brown was bringing out there was the contemporary relevance of Lord Haldane. This may be somebody who was alive 100 or so years ago, but the things that he put in place are still 
relevant, whether that be across our military, across our state, across the way we organize ourselves in terms of the machinery of government, through our uh, legal traditions and uh, norms, and not least through our universities and our research and grant system. So, John, I, this, I'm going to ask you an impossible task, which is it, to summarize in the space of, of 15 minutes or so, uh, the core elements of Lord Haldane's life achievements and philosophy. Oh, but you are on mute. Julia, thank you very much indeed for um, those, um, both the invitation and for your, and obviously for Gordon Brown's incredibly kind words. I'm deeply honoured to be part of this discussion. Haldane loved both economics and moral philosophy, two keystones of social science and public policy, and even found time to write as a young man the biography of Adam Smith, a landmark figure in these two critical fields. How appropriate, therefore, that Gordon should be addressed Addressing us from his home in Kirkcaldy, where Smith not only was born, but wrote The Wealth of Nations. And as a member of the British Academy, um, Haldane would have been honoured that the president-elect of that great institution, you, Julia, and has, yourself a distinguished professor at LSE, should be chairing our proceedings this evening. There's little that I can say in 15 minutes about a man of such incredible breadth of accomplishment. But if I can assist my eminent colleagues in catalyzing some initial interest in this truly remarkable man. May I encourage you then to follow this up by either reading the book or visiting at least my holdane.com website. For there, in addition to a synopsis of the book and reviews and other material, you could also read some of Haldane's own essays and speeches. And in that way, you'll hear his authentic voice. I believe that you will then be rewarded, as I've been deeply rewarded, by the illuminating infusions of Haldane's extraordinary example and his constant optimism throughout a life which saw him acclaimed and appreciated, but for a period also terribly maligned and misunderstood. As in his own time, Haldane's methodologies, both thinking and practice, help us to address so many of the great questions we face today at the subnational, national or international levels of our lives. But I've also found the same at the corporate and even at the personal level of my own life, and I hope that you will too. Haldane is the textbook, the mentor to whom I daily turn. If you want evidence or encouragement as to the power of the individual to affect meaningful long-term change in almost any field, Haldane is the man to turn to. So I'd like to posit to you this evening that Haldane is deeply worthy of your attention, that in the last 150 years or so of British public life, there's no public figure who has so much breadth to offer us in terms of consistent, practical, philosophically based thinking, combined with brilliant statesmanship like techniques and policy execution, that he's made an exemplary long term impact through both peace and war on British life and society, and that you are therefore right. Andrews, here at your School of Public Policy, to bring Haldane's memory in from the cold and to place it centrally in your work and ambitions. The fact that he was so intimately involved with the formation of LSE and with the first three decades of your development makes it even more important that I should somehow distill into these few minutes something not just of what we all owe to him historically, but what we can learn from him in the practice of public policy and public service today. 
Gordon Brown has aptly quoted the comment in the Times on Haldane's death in August 1928, that Haldane could be truly said to be one of the most powerful, subtle and encyclopedic intellects ever devoted to the public service of his country. That's an outstanding statement for ever devoted is a long span of time. But it's not enough merely to have great thoughts founded on great principles. The science and the art of statesmanship is how to translate those long-term thoughts as to the public good into effective action. And that, of course, is where the School of Public Policy here at LSE is all about. I believe that Haldane would be delighted with the development of this new school within the college, the university that he loved so much. So who was Haldane and what did he do? He was a Scot, educated at Edinburgh University, but even more influentially at Göttingen University in Germany, where he first fell in love with idealist philosophy, that system of holistic thinking as to the enabling role to be played by the individual within wider society and the state. He came to London in 1877 to take up law at the age of 21, and to read for the bar. His training as a lawyer taught him how to think logically, master the arguments, make a compelling case. But in parallel to this legal work, he immediately immerses himself in social affairs, especially education, whilst continuing to advance his philosophical studies, editing a famous book on idealism in 1883 at the age of only 27. He became a Liberal MP in 1885 at the age of 29, and thereafter increasingly became in modern parlance the think tank of the younger Liberal Party membership, embodied particularly by his close relationship with Asquith and with Edward Gray. This was a time when the Liberals were the party of social and economic progress. The Independent Labour Party was yet to be formed only in 1900 and was first represented in Parliament only in 1906. Indeed, Haldane, in his perfect scheme of things, would have wished that the Liberals would embrace much of the policies which were later to be espoused by the Labour Party, and in so doing have preempted the need for a Labour Party itself. In the last years of his life, as Gordon Brown has said, he joined the Labour Party in pursuit of the cause of national education, which by then they more strongly espoused than the Liberals. Policy before party was ever Haldane's belief. So wherever possible, he actively embraced, difficult as it was, a cross-party bipartisan approach with the main opposition party of his age, the Conservatives, believing that the greatest issues, such as, say, defence and education, should be better advanced by cross-party means and broad consensus. His language was always that of conciliation, avoiding as much as humanly possible dogmatic party political antagonism. He'd become, at the age of only 33 in 1889, the youngest QC appointed for 50 years. His legal work prospered, specialising in cases which were argued before the ultimate appeal courts of the House of Lords and the Privy Council, the judgments that Julia uh, talked about. Here, his philosophical thinking on the nature of efficient and effective societies could also be profitably deployed alongside his legal skills. Let me try, therefore, to summarise Haldane's philosophical foundations. 
Professor Lertz in Göttingen introduced Holden at the age of 17 to Fichte's vocation of man, stressing the importance of acting in accordance with one's own conscience and that every human being is called to seek to eradicate inequality. Fichte famously saw the vocation of the scholar as being, and I quote, the supreme supervision of the actual progress of the human race in general and the unceasing promotion of that progress. So Holden became an idealist, the philosophy developed in his time in Britain by T.H. Green and others, which inspired a young man or a young woman with the hope that their actions could have world changing consequences. Through the study of Kant, Schopenhauer and Berkeley, but most particularly Hegel, he gradually and continually developed the philosophical principles upon which he would live the whole of his life. For philosophy to hold it enabled him to harmonize all the many differing viewpoints or categories or degrees of reality, as he called it, within the world. Truth is multifaceted and time must be taken to bring it into a coherent perspective. Holding constantly read and reread Hegel and adapted his thinking to his own understanding of progress. Let me give you just one example. Freedom, excuse me, is the dominant principle underlying Haldane's concept of the state. Yet, how can the state, in taking powers from the individual, actually foster that freedom? Haldane believed the state is what its members make it to be, and that power, picking up Gordon's point, is devolved upwards. So, in our lives, this means that we should be left as free as possible to run our families, our homes, unimpeded by excess bureaucracy. But when a greater efficiency or enablement can be achieved through this, the collaborative workings of our local community, or of our suburb, or our town, working together, or where we can do something even better and even more efficiently at the higher levels of our county or um, England or in Gordon's case, Scotland or the United Kingdom level or in wider international associations such as the European Union or NATO or the United Nations or the World Bank or whatever, then we should happily exercise those powers at that higher level. But at every level, and this is the key, you or I remain an integral part of that level of authority. I remain an individual, but I'm also an integral paid up part of my family, a part of my neighborhood, a part of Greater London, a part of England, the United Kingdom, NATO, the United Nations. I am the World Bank because I wish for the greater good to me and others to embrace those levels of organizing influence into my affairs. Devolving upwards, only those levels of authority that are needed to create a more effective society and which could be more efficiently handled at that higher level is the key to Haldane's philosophy of the state. It's, I believe, enormously helpful in working out today where the allocation of potentially competing responsibilities and powers should really rest. Perhaps in the discussion afterwards, we can dig deeper on this and in the relations of the UK today with its constituent countries and regions, now externally with the European Union and other countries or groups internationally. We can even talk about Holday's judicial work, which sufficiently altered the balance of power of the Canadian constitution in favour of the provinces over the 
the dominion, I pushing power down to, I believe, save the integrity of Canada when the referendum on Quebec's independence in 1995, 68 years after Haldane's death, was so narrowly rejected. Despite all that he devolved down to the provinces, it was 50.6% to 49.4% for Quebec to stay in Canada. If Haldane hadn't done that, Canada, I don't believe, would exist as it, in the unity it still has today. That's the power of thinking ahead. His work in the fields of education and social improvement brought him close to the founders of LSE, Sidney and Beatrice Webb. He worked intimately with them from the early 1890s until his death nearly 40 years later in 1928, serving actually with Sidney Webb, by then he'd become Lord Passfield, in Ramsay MacDonald's first Labour government in 1924. His educational work, which I know that our colleague tonight, Jill Palou, the great expert on the history of university education and civil service, will no doubt focus, was phenomenal. And beyond his home country of Scotland, which in Haldane's time was more broadly educationally advanced than any other part of the United Kingdom, not the case today, he truly played a significant part in laying the foundation stones of the modern university structure of the United Kingdom. LSE, London University is a teaching institution rather than an examining body, the civic universities, especially Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Bristol, Sheffield, Reading, Southampton, Nottingham, Imperial College in London, the National University of Ireland, Queen's University in Belfast, and the University of Wales, they all bear his imprint. But his pioneering university work started with the foundation of LSE in 1895. So let me seek to encapsulate what Haldane did for your great um, the university. Haldane was the first of the modern British politicians to understand that the study of economics and social science lies at the heart of an efficient and fair modern society. In 1895, he was the sympathetic barrister to whom the webs turned as they sought potentially controversially to divert part of the £10,000 Hutchison bequest, that's a million pounds in today's money, a bequest to the Fabians towards the establishment of a potentially great new school of economics and social science. Haldane gave the Webbs the robust, encouraging advice that they wanted and needed, and he guided them in the launch of their small, fragile boat in those rocky upper streams of the Great River, which is today's LSE. He personally subscribed funding for the initially independent parallel creation of the LSE library, and he became a trustee of the school itself. He worked with the Webbs to raise the finance significantly from his friend Lord Rothschild for the construction of the Clare Market Building, the, first, the school's first purpose-built facility in 1901. In 1902, he forms with the Webbs the Coefficients Dining Club, which brought together politicians of all persuasions with good thinkers in diverse fields relevant to public policy, hosting the first dinner at his home. And then in 1906, on entering government as Minister for War for the first time, the office he held for six years before becoming the Liberal Lord Chancellor for three years, he established the army class at LSE. That had the dual benefit of better educating the army officers, but was also a very early pioneering form in Britain of what today we call the business school.
And in that same year, he was appointed president of the Royal Economic Society, a post which he held until his death 22 years later. And throughout the whole of that period, John Maynard Keynes was either the secretary of the society or the editor of the society's economic journal, which I used to study at Cambridge. Interesting times. In 1918, as the chairman of the trustees of the magnificent education endowment by Sir Ernest Castle of 50 million pounds in today's money, he was responsible for allocating the equivalent of 15 million pounds to the development of the School of Commerce at LSE. Throughout all his work with LSE, he was passionate about research as foundational in the development of policy. He personally commissioned the research and lectures by Percy Ashley on free trade policies in 1904. He was closely involved with the invitation to Lasky to become Professor of Politics in 1920. He worked with Beveridge after his appointment as director of the school from 1920 onwards and ensured an invitation to the marvellous Bostonian that Gordon has talked about, Mary Follett, and I commend her to you, to lecture in the new field of industrial psychology, the birthplace of the modern business consulting sector in the mid-1920s. Everything that she wrote in the 20s and early 30s is deeply relevant today. But as a practical politician, his foundational principled thinking was always philosophically grounded. Just as Adam Smith had held the chair, the chair of moral philosophy at Glasgow, Haldane was offered the chair of moral philosophy at St Andrews in 1904, just a year before, after 20 years as an MP, as I mentioned, he entered government for the first time. And a year after he enters government, in 1907, he becomes president of the Aristotelian Society. Haldane understood the relevance of that subtle blend of principled political economy and practical political life, with which under Professor Velasco, your new great school of public policy is so greatly concerned. Haldane ever combined theory and practice, research and execution. So, let me conclude with a comment on how he prepared himself for effective public service, service which rings down through the generations to our time in the organisations he created or influenced, not least here at LSE. He identified the great issues of his time where improvements were both necessary and practicable, idealism and realism combined and made himself an expert in these fields. He understood the enabling power of good law and good justice, the importance of international cooperation and of national defence, the role of economics and sociology in political life, the transformative role of education in social progress, the decisive contribution of science and research, the importance of an efficient structure of government, the role of an enabling civil service, the need for consensual cross-party cooperation to achieve anything that's lasting, and above all, the balance in the role and the functions of the state and the role of the individual within the state. What does it take to be a Haldane? I posit the following. A first-class mind, principled logical thinking, 
idealism, the belief that the world be made better than before, extraordinary hard work, deep love of one's fellow human beings, true generosity of spirit, real empathy with all classes, whether the king or his mining constituents, deep patience in seeking to understand other people's views, an extraordinary ability to consult, connections, assiduously developing relationships which enhanced his causes, and not least that inner conviction and determination to bring about implementable change, to overcome the prejudice and opposition of those who could live comfortably with the established status quo. Haldane was exceptional, but nevertheless what he did and what he stood for remains within the grasp of exceptional others. And that surely is the inspiring message which must ring out today about Haldane to every student who aspires to leadership and to every supporting academic within the great and emerging school of public policy at LSE, which I believe so appropriately honours Haldane's memory this evening. Wonderful, John. Thank you so much. Um, incredibly powerful, uh, incredibly powerful man, and incredibly powerful uh, insights that you have given us into his life and thinking and into his work. John, I'm going to turn to you because I know that some areas of your research overlap with some of the things that Haldane himself was involved in. Your work on the history of the civil service, your work on on education and the role of benefactors in universities, et cetera. And these obviously were some, some of the roles that Haldane played. So really interested to hear your own reflections on Lord Haldane and his work. Well, I would like to um, concentrate on um, Haldane's significance in the development of English universities, trying along the way to get into the mind of the man, the aim of any good historical biographer, and so well done by John Campbell, whose work we're celebrating this evening. I want to start talking about the civic universities. Haldane's education as a philosophy student at Edinburgh and then at the University of Göttingen in the early 1870s influenced him profoundly and continually provided the context for his work. He regarded the pattern of education in England as remarkably backward compared with that in Germany in providing educational opportunities he greatly preferred the broader tradition of the Scots, which he felt at all stages could extend horizons for different levels of society. He was particularly hostile to the exclusive nature in England of Oxford and Cambridge. One of the visionary characteristics that comes out again and again was Haldane's desire to steer major facets of a democratic society, be it education, the army, public service, towards becoming an organic whole. As far as education was concerned, he pronounced, I do not believe any system of education will ever be satisfactory, which does not link together the primary, the secondary and tertiary system and make the tertiary the head with a university dominating the whole edifice with what the Germans call Geist, a spirit of intelligence. Bourdain believed that an effective education system should un underpin the structures of public life, in particular the civil service, whose open competitive system had created something of a restricted hierarchy. He made this clear in his evidence to the Macdonald Commission in 1912. Accepting the inevitability of the dominance of Oxford and Cambridge graduates for the time being, 
but anticipating the day when civic universities, a term that allegedly he popularized, would start to supply appropriately educated officials at all levels. By the turn of the century then, in his mid-40s and a successful barrister and liberal politician, Haldane became professionally involved in the development of civic universities. In 1902, he successfully appeared before a special committee of the Privy Council to urge the case for the independence of Liverpool University College, which up till then had been part of the Federal Victoria University. As a result, Liverpool gained its charter and right to award its own degrees. Manchester and Leeds, the other members of the Federation, followed in 1904. By that time, the University of Birmingham had been founded in 1900, and university colleges had been established in Bristol, Sheffield, Nottingham and Reading. These were stimulated by civic pride, allied to industrial and commercial wealth, and the determination of a number of civic leaders to address the pressing need to provide opportunities to inculcate scientific and technical skills in order to fuel industry. It was a process much admired by Haldane. From then on, he articulated the importance of the independence of civic universities for the enhancement of social democracy. They should award their own degrees and act as a local beacon of intellectual leadership. Preaching the great gospel of educational opportunity to the burghers of Bristol, when he became chancellor of their new university in 1909, he urged, you have it in your power now, if you so choose, to make it possible for the son or daughter of every poor man in this city to attain to this splendid advantage of life. I can see no limit to what may be the development of the civic university within the next hundred years. I look to its becoming the dominant and shaping power in our system of national education. Bourdain took his many university roles very seriously. He loved to address students about their good fortune and potential. In 1913, as rector of the University of Edinburgh, his proposed lessons in life to them included the following. Do not be cast down by misfortunes in life. Avoid cynicism. Avoid egoism. Pursue tenacity of purpose through concentration of purpose. And he suggested the way to address important issues as follows. First, think it all out to the best of your ability and then go straight forward on the principles and with the objects on which you have fixed, looking neither to the right nor to the left. Your principles and your objects must be high, the higher the better. Stick to plans once formed, only changing them for the clearest of reasons. It is firmness and persistence that bring success in the end, probably more than anything else. You may be beaten at first, you may have to wait, but the courage, courage that is undaunted and can endure generally at last prevails. And this indeed was the way in which Haldane himself approached and tackled problems. He became involved early on in the process of state funding to universities. It was becoming clear that English cities could no longer be expected to maintain on their own their universities through donations, rate support and tuition fees. In 1889, Salisbury's Conservative government agreed that a modest sum, £15,000, 
should be allocated by the state for distribution to the university colleges. Small as it was, this was an important indication that the state accepted responsibility for supporting locally-based provision of university education as part of a national resource. In 1904, as the overall grant was approaching £100,000, Ordain chaired a Treasury Committee to report on how state funding could be most effectively organised and distributed to institutions providing higher education of a university standard. Since access to state funding was going to require regular inspection in turn for a quinquennial grant, a permanent university colleges committee was established in 1906 to advise on its distribution. Importantly, the Treasury felt it necessary to allay fears that the universities might entertain about any loss of freedom that might be the result of accepting government subsidy. This more permanent committee was ably run partly by Sir Francis Mowat, former permanent secretaries of the Treasury, friend and much admired by Haldane. This was the forerunner of the University Grants Committee of 1919, and that articulation of the state's understanding that central government funding should in no way affect the autonomy of the university recipients is, of course, a critical theme, anticipating the later development that became enshrined as the famous Haldane Principle. From 1890, Haldane was on the Council of University College London, and he became enmeshed in the long saga of reform of the University of London, which had already absorbed the time of two royal commissions. He played a pivotal role in the enactment of the 1898 University of London Act. His close ally was Sidney Webb, by then chairman of the Technical Education Board of London County Council. The issue was how to rationalise the hitherto dominant role of the university, its national, indeed imperial, examination system, in such a way that it would also become a respected teaching institution involving academics from the growing university-level colleges in and around the metropolis. In this conundrum, Baldane was quite clear that what really mattered about university education was the inspiration and the love of learning that a good teacher could inculcate in his pupil. This was what he had experienced in Göttingen under his professor Lertz. Above all, examination should not interfere with that. Indeed, Haldane believed that examinations could be a serious impediment to true university learning. In partnership with Webb, therefore, he threw his weight behind those who supported the idea of creating a new category of recognised teachers, which could be conferred on academics of suitable distinction within a 30-mile radius of the centre, working to an academic council presiding over the whole teaching function. In accordance with Haldane's passion for system and for diversity, this would create a framework of all higher education bodies in the metropolis, catering for traditional, external, evening and part-time study. In a world to put all higher education in London under one immense umbrella. Haldane's alliance with Sidney Webb had been formed over the founding of LSE. As a successful lawyer tinged with socialism, as Beatrice Webb put it in her diary, Haldane acted as a go-between for progressive liberals and the Fabians. 
He supported Webb's vision of creating a new London-based academic institution that would better inform rulers and citizens about social, political, and economic processes than did existing universities. This was one leg of their plan to create two new London University colleges, filling a gap that was lacking for those wanting to pursue scientific and technical careers at home and overseas. This involved the application of science in the administrative hub of the British Empire, social science at LSE and natural science at what became Imperial College. Actively helping Webb in the process, legally, financially and with his time, in return, Haldane observed Webb's flair for the strategy and tactics of policymaking and his success in securing both public and private support during the years that led up to the opening of the London School of Economics in 1895. LSE was incorporated into the University of London after the 1898 Act, with its degrees designated as BSc Econ and DSc Econ in a much appreciated nod to the school's subjects being regarded as a science. Bourdain's realisation in the early years of the 20th century of his vision of a London version of his much-admired Prussian Institute of Technology at Charlottenburg was perhaps his most remarkable legacy to the British higher education system. In 1907, Imperial College of Science and Technology was formally incorporated as an institution awarding University of London science degrees. The ramifications of this achievement which included coaxing three separate distinguished institutions, one of them, City and Guilds College, not even an academic institution, to coalesce into one cohesive technical college of international standing, while securing an unprecedented amount of private funding to complement available state support, involved considerable resources that probably only Haldane possessed. One might list them as follows, and I notice that John concludes his talk with a list of Hordone's resources. In this project, deep commitment to a rational philosophic vision was the prime thing, followed by imagination about the logical steps to achieve it, <clears throat> the use of extensive, powerful personal contacts cultivated with charm, and dogged but patient determination to pursue his end. These were the formidable personal resources that R. B. Haldane had achieved so much with in the advance of English higher education. Thank you. Jill, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And just as that, just to bring into life one part of his work, I think just shows us the, the enormity of his achievements, given that that, as I say, was one part. But as you say, that bringing, bringing out that combination, as John has also brought out, of that, that basis of that very, very clear but committed rational philosophy with that deep ide idealism uh, that these goals can be achieved, but also the ability and the statesmanship and the state's craft to be able to achieve it, I think really, for me, marks him out as an achiever. We can have great statesmen and great rhetoricians, but Haldane was a doer and an achiever, and he managed to get things done through, uh, through ways, um, 
yeah, through ways which were ne not necessarily always visible. I, I often wonder if, if those for whom he, he, he managed to enroll to do things were, were ever really very clear the extent to which their strings were being pulled <laughs> just a little bit by, by Haldane. What do you think it would have been like to be one of Haldane's colleagues, John, in these endeavours? Well, I think, this, the, the, first of all, let me just comment on education. That um, Don't forget, everything he did in education, he did in his spare time. He was never a government minister. Uh, he, he did as a lawyer um, or as, as a government minister in other areas, obviously in at the war office and as the Lord Chancellor. And then as a judge, he was uh, heavily committed in his judicial work from 1912 till literally weeks before his death in 1928. So he found time to do this, this educational stuff on the side, so to speak. But with such rigour. And I always recall that wonderful inquiry he did into London University. For It sat for three years between 1911, I think it was in 1913, was it, Jill? And they had, it was just over 70 days of evidence being taken and 70 days of deliberation, all while he was doing a full-time job as Lord mm -hmm. Chancellor as the Minister for War. And that when you saw the quality of the people they brought from literally all over the world, to give evidence and the way that he mastered the brief so that you would come in Julie and say now um, Professor Black thank you very much for submitting this 20 page paper may we include it in our report and I'd like if you'd allow us to do that to turn straight to the key question and then he'd go straight in and, and, and cross-examine you to bring out the point he wanted brought out and he sat every single day on that. On one occasion, he arrived late because of a sudden cabinet meeting which he couldn't avoid attending. So I think it is that, as you say, the dedication to making it happen, that commitment, that uh, the doggedness that um, <laughs> Julia talks about. And as you rightly say, it's working the back stairs as well as going through the front door, that um, lobbying everybody from the king, that he was deeply affectionate with King Edward VII. He's one of the a few people outside the more normal people that you'd expect to be invited after the king's death to go and sit beside the queen in the king's bedroom with the body there because he was just so deeply affectionate with him and this and he, he was able to work with Edward the seventh to achieve things and at the same time he'd go out and around the country to his mining constituents he was always traveling taking the word out lobbying explaining making sure there was democratic support for what he wanted to achieve. Incredible. Anders, I'm, I'm going to turn to you because um, I don't know about you, but, but holding makes me wonder what I've been doing with my life from generally uh, all this time. But you have been, I mean, you're an academic of, of some significant standing, an economist, but you've also been in politics. You've been Minister of Finance at Chile. You've You've lived in some of these worlds that, that Haldane has inhabited. But I'm really curious to get your own reflections on on Haldane as a as a as a policy maker, as a as a as a politician with a small P, as it were. Thank you very much, Julia. Uh, let me just say at the outset how delighted uh, I am, and let me say this on, on behalf of the School of Public Policy. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jill, um, for bringing Haldane to life. Um, as I was listening to you, this was what came to my mind. Uh, I've been uh, the Dean of the School of Public Policy at LSE for three years now, almost, and I've made more than one speech in which I said, 
we aim to train and shape uh, policy leaders who will be you know, extraordinarily good at uh, academic research, who will be able to identify the relevant data and evidence, but at the same time, they will be trained in economics and politics and quantitative methods. And of course, on top of all of that, they will have political skills, communication skills, and be able to get their point across, negotiate in parliament, get a bill passed, and then explain it the next morning on TV. And I will confess to you that as I say that, and I've said it more than once with great enthusiasm, uh, I do wonder in my own mind, well, if somebody said, give me an example of someone like that, I know I'd be hard pressed. Um, in, in English history, of course, one person who did all of that is John Maynard Keynes, um, um, who was not a politician, but he was a policymaker, of course, of the, uh, of the greatest influence, aside from being an extraordinary thinker and a speculator in bed early in the morning. Um, but uh, aside from Keynes, I have not had that many people on my list that I could deploy readily. And I think what, what John and Jill uh, and John's wonderful book Gordon Brown's intro have, have given us is, as Julia pointed out, an example of someone who could do all of these things, could do them very well, um, had extraordinary skills at the academic, at the practical, like do politics, but also do policymaking, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the one thing that uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on um, is the following. Clearly, the skills that are required to get things done in the real world are not the same today as they were a century ago. Um, you said one thing, John, that made me think about the passage of time, but even in this sense, Haldane seems to have been a, a very modern character. You said, you know, at some point as he was climbing the highest peak in Scotland, he realized that every liberal MP who represented Scotland was a lawyer who lived in London. Um, and, you know, he realized that was bound to come to an end. Well, it did come to an end, not only, not only in Scotland, of course, in which, you know, today is Scottish nationalists, as Gordon Brown pointed out, who are running the show. But this is a broader trend worldwide. You know, we're living at a time of a pretty deep-seated uh, counter-revolution against elites of all kinds, particularly political elites, people who come from big cities, people who have, you know, too many university degrees. Uh, we are living at a time when effective politicians either come from the people or like Donald Trump, pretend to come from the people. So my question to, to both John and, and Jill is, if, if, if you were you know, using Haldane as an example, uh, what are the things that our students who aim to be influential policymakers ought to be doing differently? We ought to know, you know, we, we, you know from your presentations, we know the ones that uh, Haldane did right. What, what, what else would one need? For instance, is it conceivable today that such an establishment figure would be as influential as it was a century ago? Uh, what other things come to mind that uh, are skills needed today that we do not find embodied by Haldane? I know that that's probably an unfair question. It goes way beyond the scope of your book, but it's such a fascinating subject that I'll, I'll take the leap and ask it anyway. Bill, do you want to go first? Well, not entirely answering your question because I'm not going to respond in terms of your students. But I think that something that was very interesting about his thinking uh, was that Haldane believed that people in their professions, 
in the army, in the civil service, should know and understand and study intellectually their professions, which is quite an unusual thing at the time. It explains his being the um, president, I think he was, of the Institute of Public Administration from 1923. It explains the fact, I think, John, I'm right in saying that he wanted started wanted to start a course for army officers in, um, at LSE, am I right? 1906. By 1906. I mean, he, he rightly felt that learning never stops and that you should go on trying to understand where you're coming from intellectually as well as practically working at it. Um, I'd like to, to say that anyway. I think if I was to add to that, that um, Andres, that what's happened so much, I think, with politicians today is that they really do seem to have lost touch with the people they represent. Um, and if you're going to um, go into elites and get into bubbles where you have the kind of dialogue or lack of dialogue across the floor of the House of Commons and expect to have the people will have any respect for you at all, you've got to be completely barking. And yet they carry on with this absurd third play, which is so um, debilitating to the state of the nation and so little appreciated, I think, by the people in the nation. Haldane was the exact opposite of that. It was a bitterly contested time, and the Conservatives were fighting the Liberals tooth and nail. When the Liberals came in in 1906, the Conservatives had the complete majority in the House of Lords. They could vote down anything. Any bill had to go to the House of Lords for approval. So to be able to get anything through, you had to get the Conservatives on side. And that's where Haldane decided, if you take, say, his army reforms, the army was completely unfit for purpose after the tragedy of the Boer War, and had been unfit for purpose for several decades before that. Um, Haldane said to Campbell Bannerman, the Prime Minister, give me the toughest job of the lot. And Campbell Bannerman, who was no friend of Haldane's, gave him the war ministry, uh, believing if he could succeed, he succeeded, but if he failed, he got rid of this turbulent priest. Haldane goes off to the hills to think. He famously said that and that I am a, 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 a virgin that has just been united to a bronzed warrior. You won't expect any sign of progress for nine months. And so he took a number of months going off to the hills to think. He put up, he said to his army generals, I want to put up in gold a sign in the war office that, it, that you must always think first. Thinking costs nothing. And so you, you go often you work out what you're going to do in a deeply logical way and then you consult with and in so doing consult with everybody and then go out to the people to the democracy to sell what it is you're doing and I can tell you yeah, when, when I was going through the papers in the National Archive in Edinburgh the, the, the National Library of Scotland it was extraordinary the travels that he went through night after 
after night on trains, getting back to London at two or three in the morning and in court at 10 o'clock in the morning, but had to get up to reread the brief at six o'clock. And he worked well over, well over 16 hours a day because he just, everything he did was work. Every dinner party was influencing people. There, there was no, his social life was always influential. It was a, a, a total commitment. And I think that's the only way that you're ever going to really make the degree of progress he made. But half it or quarter it, you could still do today some wonderful things if you behave as a statesman. And I think that Gordon Brown, I, if I may say this, I think he's coming through so strongly today compared with some of our other former prime ministers, because he is taking a statesmanlike view. It is not a grubby political view. And uh, if I add one last thing, and I'm a, a, a businessman, that if I was to look at the way the government is run today and have, and recent governments have been run, you, know, you would never allow it to happen as a businessman. And so Haldane, he wrote that brilliant report on the future of government, which was published in 1918 about the structure of government post-war. There'd been a small um, uh, uh, committee of the cabinet that ran the, the war for the last two years five members. Haldane wrote this report, which inter alia said there should only be 12 members of the cabinet. You cannot have an efficient body discussing all these subjects with 25, 26 people. Here we are 100 years later, and we're still trying to do that. And we've got to work out the way it's done. Otherwise, you hand it all to non-elected officials, the SPACs and the others, or SPADs, whatever, whatever, whatever you call them, these policy advisors. And it's taken away from the politicians who should be able to get on top of these, but they need to concentrate more and then hand specialist functions to people and stick for the long term. Mm. So with the question in just, I suppose, uh, along that vein from Mark Frankel, who asks, was Haldane so unusual in being a philosopher-politician? And he gives the example of Balfour, for example, who also did a lot for education. Yeah. So, this, so uh, other I, examples of a philosopher-politician, and I might add a little twist to that, which is, is it possible, given today's contemporary role concerns with populism, et cetera, to be a philosopher politician? Is there any role for a philosopher politician in contemporary political life? We'd like um, to take. Well, I, I, I would quickly say I think that, that you cannot be an effective statesman as opposed to mm-hmm. politician unless you are a philosopher, unless mm-hmm. you understand how the structure of society works and, and how you can hold visions before you and work towards it and establish principles, establish the principles and then stick to those principles. So um, I'd turn the question on its head. I, I, you won't get proper leadership until you get some real philosophy back into it and that's the role of your great school one of the roles indeed but any example and i'm looking for that's a fantastic thing i'm also looking for examples any others that andres you as you said before you were looking hunting for and i i don't have an example but i do have a reflection that is very Uh close to what to what john just said um and as background let me say that um the school of public policy introduced last year a course on political philosophy as a required course for our future MPPs, Masters of Public Policy. Very much, John, based on the logic you have just explained. Um, You know, if you're going to be a policy leader, 
you will have to do the right things and, and craft the right laws and look at the right data. But you also have to have an overarching mission. Why is this fair? Um, I always tell students that the moment uh, when I was very embarrassed, I, early on when I became a cabinet minister, that I went to a hearing with all kinds of data ready to explain why my policy was technically right. Um, but the first question I got was not whether the policy was technically right. Someone said, Minister, is this a fair policy? And frankly speaking, I did not have an answer to that question. I didn't even have the vocabulary because in order to know, you know, you must have spent half an hour or so thinking about what do you mean by fair? Fair for whom? According to what, what standards? Uh, so in that sense, I think John is absolutely right. Being a philosopher of some kind is... Um, is uh, absolutely essential. And parenthetically, in, in, in Keynes' account of what it takes to be a good economist, he mentioned, you know, not just being a mathematician, but also being a bit of a historian and a bit of a philosopher. So I think Keynes was on your side, uh, John. I've been laughing that Keynes has been on my side since my time at Cambridge, reading economics in 66 and 69. I still keep by my side the general theory with the date of April 67, when I first got my copy and my name was written inside it. And his chapter 12 there has been a Bible to me through the whole of my corporate life about the, um, the way in which um, uh, companies can best work, how investment best works. And I, I'm a financier. Basically, he was the first to write down coherently, the public company does not work. You get deeper depressions when people can run for the door and sell shares where things start to go wrong. If there was a, if every company was held privately with limited marketability, you'd have stronger econ companies and stronger economies. So you know, I think that this practical political economy that goes with politics is really so important, so important. I think there's a whole other event that we can do, actually, John, on the purposes of the corporation that will pick you up on that before mm -hmm. I, I, I won't go, I'll restrain you myself from going down that particular track. So, and, uh, but we do have some other uh, questions here actually coming in. So we've got one from Ali Lakani, which is, I think, an excellent question. Where did Haldane stand on the spectrum between principle and pragmatism? Was he one to sacrifice principle to pragmatism? And feel free in the best traditions of uh, social science, arts, humanities subjects to question the question, obviously. So spectrum between principle and pragmatism. Do you want to go or should I? Well, I think you've made the point already so brilliantly, John, that, I mean, he had this idealist side to him, with man of principle and philosophy, and at the same time he was practically so able um, and um, philosophically able to carry out what he wanted to do. It, it, it's, I, I, I can't fault him in the education side, but I may be missing something. I think that, that, yes, of course, you have to be pragmatic. And this was where, when I did a summary of, of the great features of Haldane's approach at the back of my book, there were five encapsulating thoughts. And one of them was to combine idealism with realism. Mm -hmm. You could have 
have the most wonderful ideas and you could have all the skills to get them put through. But until, for example, the House of Lords was reformed in 1911, you had no chance whatsoever of getting certain things through. So you have to be pragmatic in that sense. Don't even attempt to make a change when you're going to run into the most virulent opposition and it'll be stopped. But but, so yes, of course he had to be pragmatic and to get through his um, reorganization of territorial land. We haven't talked at all about his army, but just for the benefit of one or two maybe that listening in, and that he becomes minister for war. He looks at the whole structure of the army. He finds it completely unfit for purpose. He decides that what we've got to have is a fighting force, very quickly mobilizable, because the big question he has is, what is the purpose of the army? It is to win a war, should there be a war. God help us, he didn't want there to be a war, but if it was going to happen, he wants us to be prepared. So he sets up the British Expeditionary Force for 160,000 men, the greatest and most efficient army ever to take the field in European affairs, because the German armies and the French armies were, were significant, they were conscripted. Mm-hmm. Um, so British Expeditionary Force, the Territorial Army, he would have loved the Territorial Army to have to take a pledge, which would enable them to go immediately into foreign service, should that be required. But the Conservatives, who held the key to it all, refused to allow that to happen. So he compromised, yes, he was pragmatic on that. He believed, come the moment, if war was declared, they would immediately, with the fervour, then change from just being there restricted, officially restricted by the Conservatives, to serve at home in home defence and be prepared to go abroad. And then he puts in together MI5, he puts together MI6, the officer's training course, he creates the Royal Air Force, and his fingerprints underlie so many parts of Britain. And come the day in 1914, the army was mobilised in two weeks and standing on the left wing of the French army was able to stop the German armies from taking Paris and the, 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 that autumn. So you know, an extraordinary achievement. But yet he was a total European before it was ever a word that anybody would use. He loved Germany. He loved the German thinking. He loved the German philosophy and and literature. Goethe, he would travel every year for... I think it's the best part of 15 or so, maybe more years with Professor Hume Brown from Edinburgh in writing the book and traveling the footsteps of Goethe. They'd go and stand on hilltops where Goethe had written particular uh, books uh, or poems. And they, uh, and the, to get, Hume Brown wrote the book died just before the second volume was completed. So Haldane finished that with his assessment of Faust and publishes the second volume. That um, It was a tragedy for Haldane that Germany um, that went so crazily to war. Uh, of course, there, there were many factors that led to that, um, but it was a total tragedy. And of course, because he'd gone out around the country constantly saying, look to Germany for education, look to Germany in business, with and um, the aniline dyes with um, the, with armaments now as we've got to improve our capability and he had three occasions visiting the Kaiser one very secretly the government never talked about which excited great suspicion about what he'd been doing in Berlin in 1912 as the emissary of the government so the conservatives when they get their chance to bite back uh, stand firmly against him against coming into the coalition government 
Ireland in 1915 if Haldane stays, and Asquith, who shall uh, appallingly didn't stand by his man and sacrificed Haldane, and uh, Haldane went off but did brilliant legal and other work and educational work. Mm -hmm. So, so he, he continued to work, but the most probably the most able man in government in May 1915, the only fluent German speaker was thrown to the wolves. Such is, such is politics, such are friends as it were in politics. So we have um, this, this question about his philosophy and, and rooting his, his, practical, his, his practical politics, but also his imagination and his thoughts and his ambitions in, in, in philosophy is, is exciting quite a lot of interest in in those who are listening we've got a couple of questions circling around that that okay. theme so we, I'm, I'm going to run them together because um and and then you can reflect on them so one is is one which you've touched on but just to explore a little more from dr abhishek batia so excuse my pronunciation is in your opinion do the problems of today stem from a deficiency of philosophical thought on solution debate and policy tables and i think from what we've spoken about so far, the answer is, is probably yes. But then Bethany Carter is, is prompting us to think a little bit more. So Bethany is a second year MPA student, so one of our students, um, asking how to define, how does one define philosophy for the purpose of statementship in this day and age, especially in a globalised world not built solely on the Western philosophical, philosophical tradition that undergirded Haldane's age? Uh, is this more wider wider issues that we would now see as incorporating sociology, anthropology, ethics, etc. So that those wider contemplations beyond the technical, really, and what does one draw on uh, to be able to drive forward, uh, or what we needed to, to, to draw on to drive forward debate of the type that Haldane would, I suppose, approve of, <laughs> or, or not recognise, particularly in our, in our polarised world. Jill, let me shoot first on this, and then you can uh, please come in. Um, Bethany, the example I give you is one that is really outside immediate politics, but becomes centrally to a politics later on as a result of just doing principled philosophical thinking. Um, Haldane at the bar specialised in um, the big issues that would go to the House of Lords, the ultimate court of appeal, or would go to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, which was the Supreme Court of the Empire. And um, that he hadn't got a particularly strong voice. He had a quite slightly uh, piping voice. And he knew that he wouldn't be someone who would be a great uh, theatrical cross-examiner. So he never chose to go that side. He focused in this very, very special area and made very early progress. When he went to the House of Lords in 1911, even before he became Lord Chancellor, he was invited to serve on the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, the Supreme Court of the empire, that he'd never been a judge, but he's invited to do that. He's still the government minister. It wouldn't happen today. So he starts a period from 1911 to 1928 when he served throughout. And what he did, in particular with Canada, but it applied to other parts of the empire as well, he looked at the Constitution of Canada of 1867, the British North American Act, as a philosopher would look at it. And as he looked at it, he saw that John MacDonald had tried 
right to write a very centralist um, authority. Basically, certain powers were given to the dominions, but everything else in the interpretation that had been given until that time, until shortly before Holden's time, was towards the centre. If in doubt, go to the centre. Um, Lord Watson, who succeeded Haldane, that Haldane had a very great admiration for the Judicial Appeals Committee, had begun to set the trend, and Haldane absolutely went for it. And whenever he could, using his Hegelian philosophical background, he chose either this business getting close to the people. Power should always be at the lowest level where it can be efficiently executed. He gave the powers in his judgments to the provinces over the dominion whenever he possibly could. And people shouted and the prime minister, the prime ministers of the, of the, of, 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 of the dominion say, how can you do this? He was cheered on, obviously on by the prime ministers, uh, the ministers in charge of each of the, uh, of the provinces. But he did it. And he, and the result of that, as I said earlier, I think the supreme vindication of long-term thinking and making sure you're attached to the people is that in 1995, when Quebec, and this is what I think Gordon was alluding to in his comments on Scotland, was voting to come out of Canada because the people of Quebec didn't feel that they were getting a strong enough voice in the affairs of the state, that despite all the extra powers that Haldane gave to them, by that margin of just a little over 1%, 50.6 to 49.4, they agreed to stay. If Haldane hadn't, 68 years before when he died, given those powers over a 20-year period, Quebec must have been more unhappy and would have seceded. That's what great um, statesmanship, great philosophying, great good law, as you know, Julia, that, and that this whole question today of activism in a way in the judiciary, what is the role of the judiciary? Haldane believed the role of the judiciary was to assess the underlying general will of society. He said that's got little to do with popular opinion. Popular opinion can vote in the government one week and vote them out the next week, but the underlying general will of the direction and pace of change, it's an Hegelian philosophy. It's the, it's the um, obligation of judges to keep that in mind as they adjust what they're going to do. And that the law is not written down in a code in 1867, never to be changed. It's to be interpreted gradually in the light of emerging events. It's a living tree was the terminology used in Canada. So our reflections on that is coming in from Holly Andrew, which is, um, we reflect to his idea of policy before party and bipartisan approach. And she asks, in a polarised world, what practical advice would Haldane provide on engaging zealots and convincing them of the value of a cross-party approach, of, of the consensus building that he was so committed to, particularly in, in, our, in our days of, of polarised politics? Jill, do you want to I was going to say something quite different. I think I'll leave that particular one to John. I was going to talk about education and his philosophy about that and how that seems to have gone so badly wrong today and the 
world of universities, but that's not really answering that question. So, John, I'll leave it. Park that one, because that's the next question we will answer. (laughs) That's going to line up my next question for you. Uh, Just quickly, I think Haldane would consult. I think he'd come and see Andrus, and he'd talk it over with the faculty at at SPP. What is it that can be done here? And perhaps out of that would emerge a a council of um, reconciliation, whereby um, somehow great people in the nation get together and say to the politicians, we've had enough of this haranguing each other across the floor of the House. We want you to seek common ground. And so it was a, 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 a curse on all your houses. Let's do something to raise the standard of public life. I think it would be, I think that's where, if I, if I was to use an example of, say, the Territorial Army, um, in 19, in 2007, the centenary of the Territorial Army, I was asked to go to Clone, the house that Holden had lived in, to talk to 30 of the most senior officers who went there um, to their founder's home to brainstorm in the spirit of Holden's own surroundings. And they were asking themselves the question, where will the Territorial Army be in 10 years' time? That wouldn't have been a question, I think, that Haldane would have put. He would frame it in a different way. He said, knowing what the territorial army is today, what could we be tomorrow? Perhaps not even call the territorial army, because originally it was the territorial force. And if Haldane had set a territorial force whereby people wanting to come for the greater security of Britain, not just in the field of battle, but in, say, health security, were to work together and you were to mobilise national fervour behind something of that kind, that is ennobling of the, the, of the whole human spirit. And I think it's that kind of approach that he would tend to take to an issue that kind. He would never allow himself to be frame narrowly, go out widely, talk to lots of people and then come in narrowly. I think somehow he would find that way to reduce the confrontation and Um, the the partisanship of of party politics today. Fascinating, fascinating. So Jill, I am now going to turn to your question because I think it is a very, very personal one in relation to the what do you think his reflections would be on the university system as it is today? Well, I don't want to turn into an activist, but I think there's a lot to say about that. Mm -hmm. Bourdain's view of the best product of a university is one who's benefited from the love of learning and the pupil-teacher relationship being so important. He, um, as I said in my talk, was suspicious of the Mm -hmm. overuse of exams. But the great thing was, He believed that universities shouldn't be beholden to anyone. And above all, he wrote, there should be no sense of profit and loss in entering a university. He's perhaps thinking more of the former civic universities, but he discredits the whole idea that there should be any aspect of profit and loss. And he would abhor the concept of higher education being a commodity to be purchased through borrowing, which is what we are getting to today. And I'd like to speak up for, and as a founder member of the Council for the Defence of British Universities, founded in 2012, who believe that universities today are under threat in a way which Haldane would be completely appalled by. A series of reforms have made universities more like businesses 
subject to market forces, something that he writes in his chapter on civic universities in his little book, The Conduct of Life, he specifically is against. We believe in the CDBU that these changes in the way that universities operate and are governed pose a risk to university's central function, which is what Haldane said, to gather knowledge free from interference and to educate people in the skills they need to think critically and independently. And just a few aspects of things which would astonish Haldane today in the status of UK universities. To mention, I've written down 12, but I'll, I'll list just a few. The discontinuance of free university education, the attempt to measure scholarly output and the demand that it should have relevance or impact on the economic benefits of the nation, the definition of students as consumers looking to enable them to work for degrees simply to emerge with the highest earning prospects, and the withdrawal of direct public funding for the teaching of the humanities and social science. Julia, I'm sure you're conscious of that one. Um, just to list a few, and I don't want to go on, but I think Haldane would be appalled today in what he could see about the way universities have become in this country. Well, I can't add anything that um, could put that better. So I think one of the other, um, I'm sure others will be able to come on in on that, and what I would really like to have him now is, is standing there in, um, in, in the corner. I would love to be able to sit down with him for, for an hour uh, to, to, to hear his strategy as to how one should be, uh, be working one way through that. But one of the other issues which... Um, we can we can come back on that but one of the other issues that Gordon Brown touched on and, and John you also touched on which is a, a thorny issue today is that of, of devolution and and powers being located down to those those people where they are most efficiently um, exercised and we've got a, a question here about the tracing of the philosophy of that uh, from Edward Mortimer who argues that that is also being traced back to St Thomas Aquinas, Aquinas and wondering if how they would have been aware of that pedigree um, so with that question and then linking on another, if I may, again, thinking about Haldane being present with us now, if you were, what do you think he would be, how do you think he would be viewing the current discussions about devolution and particularly in relation to, to Scotland, obviously a, a place he knew and loved and lived, in terms of how one should be, we should be working our way through those issues? Um, I think it's, it's one of the very, very greatest questions for our time, certainly in the United Kingdom, um, that I, I can't help on St. Thomas Aquinas that I am aware, obviously, on this whole European concept of subsidiarity, which is they pay a lot of lip service to, but I don't think it's actually seen through in practice, which I know is based on, it goes back into the Renaissance and, and religious, um, it's got some strong religious foundations. And Haldane, in a way, was a subsidiary person. He wanted everything to be taken to the lowest level, which was effective. And um, the difficulty with Scotland, I think, is, is this sense that um, somehow there is a belief in Scotland that um, certain things could still be devolved to Scotland and achieve greater efficiency. And Haldane, if he was in charge of this um, review at the current time, would look very, very carefully at that. And if that was the case, 
having established the facts, he'd be absolutely for devolving and those things to Scotland. At the same time, he, I believe he'd be absolutely for seeing the greater whole. The whole point of everything he did was to have these abstractions, and then merge them all together to try to get the coherent whole. Other certain things that could be better done at a United Kingdom level, and if that was explained to the people that are going to have a vote in this, and I don't know whether the vote is going to be solely in Scotland or it's going to be a vote in the England as well, or the other parts of the United Kingdom, because this was a union between two parts that is now being um, being potentially separated, and I don't know who's going to finally have the say in that and uh, how many people have the say. I think that Gordon Brown has got a very interesting thesis that you may be aware he's been developing over the last um, couple of, two or three years, which I think Haldane would have been very, very sympathetic towards, and that is a new constitutional settlement in the United Kingdom. What is the, uh, is there an ability to let um, uh, Scotland, Wales, the regions of England, maybe other specialist organisations like the universities have a say in national affairs in a more formal way? And my own um, extension of what Gordon's been talking about, about a new form of Senate, and he talks about what happens in Germany, what happens in Canada. I've studied that very closely. I think you could go further than that and you could have a new form of Senate or whatever word you want to put on it, where all significant groups were represented, whether it's regional, um, whether it's um, um, education, whether it's research, whether it's the army, um, the, uh, the law, the people that together make up a nation and they'd be representative of each of those people meeting in a conclave together who would have certain residual powers that could temper the immediate activity of febrile politicians. How that's worked out, I've got no idea. But if the House of Lords was to be abolished in its present form and the form of Senate, which wasn't where that the Scottish voice could be appropriately significant, not just six million people to 56 million or whatever, but some rebalancing, not a total rebalancing, then I think that that might, Scotland might feel it has a greater say, a greater influence, and could be brought back to loving the union once more. And then that means going out to the people of Scotland and the people of England and all that are affected to explain on the basis of the research and the facts what these, um, the, the, what the, 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 how the question could be resolved. And then I think we might have a more sensible debate. Fascinating, fascinating. We could go on. We could go on for a long time, but uh, time is against us. And so I want to leave a few, a couple of minutes to Andres for you to, to make a few closing remarks. Thank you very, very much, Julia, John, Jill, everyone. Uh, on behalf of the School of Public Policy, let me first say how delighted and honoured we are that John has chosen to bring his magnificent book and to be joined by Jill's uh, very, very interesting reflections on a great statesman, a great policymaker, and a philosopher politician. And I will say, Julia, that as I listened to, to the three of you and as I listened to the questions, it did occur to me that maybe there are some uh, philosopher politicians, mm -hmm. clearly not philosopher politicians in the sense of a professional philosopher who turns uh, politician, but 
politicians who actually have a sense of what the bigger issues are, who can articulate why a policy is fair or unfair, and who have a bigger um, view of things. Uh, John just said that Haldane's talent, one of them, was being able to see the whole problem. Maybe that's a hallmark of a philosopher king. As I, I, uh, as I listened to Gordon Brown, I, I was thinking maybe, maybe in that sense, Gordon Brown is a philosopher king. You know, great contemporary politicians like Barack Obama, probably uh, one could say the same thing about them. Uh, then again, I am probably revealing my own personal political preferences, or I, sh I should stop there. But uh, I would like to think the philosopher king uh, as, as a species is not entirely dead. And of course, John's book reminds us of how important it is to have policy leaders and political leaders who have this, uh, broad, this broad outlook and who bring a lot of skills, different kinds of skills, to the job. It's been a great uh, hour and a half, uh, and I simply just want to reiterate uh, on behalf of our students, on behalf of the school, how relevant this book and how relevant the subjects that we've been discussing today are for public policy making, for the education of future policy leaders, and of course also to the um, many, many people who joined us this afternoon from all over the place. So just uh, once again, uh, to John, Jill, Julia, and everybody else, uh, thank you very, very much, and I hope to see you soon at uh, another LSE public event, uh, uh, which will be, I'm sure, just as fascinating as this one. Bye. Thank you. And thank you, everybody. Goodbye.